Welcome back to World History 24, where my older sister Ellie teaches me world history in order in just 24 hours. My name is Charlie. In our last episode, we covered the complicated story of early human evolution, from the first stone tool-using hominins to what we are today, Homo sapiens. By the end of the episode, humans survived all the other members of our genus. Some began to use copper tools, some began to play with the cultivation and domestication of food and animals, and some created settlements that lasted thousands of years. This second episode will cover from 4000 to 1700 BCE, often referred to simply as the Bronze Age. However, the use of bronze was not universal, nor was it the only seismic shift in human history occurring at this time. Massive civilizations were coalescing and beginning to write their own history, literature, songs, laws, and tax codes, and many people's lives were defined by slavery and warfare. This episode will examine five of these early civilizations in modern-day Iraq, Peru, India, Egypt, and China what history classes refer to as the five cradles of civilization. Although we will have to dismantle each word in this phrase, we will borrow its framework and spend 10 minutes zooming through them, discussing food, art, monuments, language, government, and more along the way. After visiting these five cradles between 4000 and 1700 BCE, we will hopefully have a more contextualized sense of the word civilization. So without further ado, let's call Ellie and continue the magnificent story of human history. So set the stage for us in, uh, in our overarching uh, series here. What times are we going to be covering this hour? So in this hour, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, and we're going to start at around 4000 BCE and take us through 1700 BCE. So the mind-boggling thing that happens right now in the course of human evolution, which as we saw last episode has been going on for millions of years and certainly for hundreds of thousands, even if you're only talking about Homo sapiens, is that right in this tiny window of a couple thousand years, civilization springs up in multiple places across the planet almost simultaneously. Right. Places that we assume have no contact with each other as well. We assume they have no contact with each other, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to talk about each one of those five places. And so we'll, you know, we'll talk about sort of 3,000, 2,000 BCE, but we'll understand that people have been living in these places for longer. So again, we're going to take us kind of out of that murky history that's hard to date and end us in 1700 BCE. So in a history book or in an archaeology book, this phrase is used a lot, these five cradles of civilization, which means these five places where civilization sprung up separately. Having said that, each one of the words, five, cradle, and civilization, are slightly misleading or slightly problematic. So (laughs) we're going to use that framework because that's the framework that would be used in a history book but i just want to quickly address why it's kind of a strange framework sure so just quickly in reverse order like five cradles of civilization so starting with the word civilization we talked a lot about that last 
episode. And that word has very problematic origins. And it's also just not a very useful word because the difference between what a civilization is and what it isn't is very gray. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of exceptions and it has Mm -hmm. way too many implications that sound like better than, and that is not remotely helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, so in a lot of ways, what we mean is the five places where really complex, complex societies and mostly what we mean is big cities began. Mm -hmm. So that when we talk about civilization, that's largely what we mean is large, complicated cities. Right. So five cradles of civilization, cradle being the next one we'll address. So what cradle means in this context is that the society grew without learning from the people around it exactly. Like they say that civilization emerged there spontaneously. So you can imagine that you might be a hunter-gatherer people or a semi-nomadic people, and then a city comes and conquers you. And then all of a sudden you're living with all the trappings of a city. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is places in which a city emerged, you know, a civilization emerged rather than learning from somebody else or having it forced on them. Okay. Uh, And interestingly, that's only happened a few times across the earth. Having said that, I don't really know how they can know for sure that Egypt and Mesopotamia weren't learning from each other, for example, they were not that far and we know they were trading constantly. So just the idea that, anything could be a cradle to me is like a little bit confusing. And then the last word is five. And in fact, the phrase is usually the six cradles of civilization because the Almecs are usually um, included in this and the Almecs are from Mesoamerica. However, their civilization emerges a little bit later. So we're actually going to talk about them in a later episode. But either way, the idea that civilization only grew organically five times is just, mm-hmm. I, I just like don't really know how we can be totally sure of that. Um, and, yeah. and so just hold all of these words lightly and just, we're using this framework. This is the framework that historians and archaeologists use to talk about mm-hmm. this thing that happens now. And we're still the the implications of what happens at this time in history are still playing out. You know, something dramatically changes in these few thousand years. And all of a sudden people are living in ways there. They've got Kings and they have cities and they have writing and they have bureaucracy, all these things that still dominate our lives to this day. And this kind of happens spontaneously in five different places across the earth at more or less the same time, which is mind boggling to me. All right, let's uh let's I guess let's jump into our first civilization then. Uh which which one did you uh which one do you want to start with? So we are going to start with the Sumerians and the Akkadians, which are in Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia is in modern day Iraq, and Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers, so meso between and then potamia, like hippopotamus, means river. So between the rivers, Mesopotamia. Wow. I know. I'm going to try to not have my mind too much, my mind blown too much about <laughs> but, a hippopotamus, but okay. Um, you learn so, something when you listen to World History 24. Exactly. You never know what you'll learn. So through this land of Mesopotamia flows the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. Okay. And these two rivers flood regularly. They start up in the mountains. They build up all this stuff called silt. 
and mm-hmm. that floods into the surrounding lands when the water floods into the surrounding lands that mm-hmm. makes the land very fertile so even though when you think of modern day Iraq you may think of it as being a dry place in the actual flood plains of these rivers it's quite fertile okay got you So people live in Mesopotamia for thousands and thousands of years, just like I'm going to say for all of these. But sometime around 4,500 BCE, they start to coalesce into these big cities. And these are kind of the earliest cities in the world. And again, like there, as we talked about with Chatelhoyuk last time, there's, it's like, what is a city exactly is a little bit nebulous. But anyway, there's these huge groups of people living in tight quarters and they uh, live in multi multi-storied buildings these buildings are all made out of mud bricks because what do you have a lot of around the Tigris and Euphrates mud so they would take them form them into bricks put them in the sun and then you know that you, you have these really strong clay bricks and you make your cities out of them okay cool. all of Mesopotamia is dotted with these different cities and these cities trade a lot with each other And there's sort of a cohesive culture throughout all of southern Mesopotamia, and those are the Sumerians. There's sort of a cohesive culture all through northern Mesopotamia. That's the Akkadians. But in the most sweeping terms, the history of this time period is that this city will become sort of more powerful. Sometimes it will conquer a couple of the cities around it, um, and then a different one will. And roughly over time, the Sumerians are very, very powerful, and then they kind of lose power as the Akkadians rise. And in in the time period that we're covering in this one episode, that's, in the most sweeping terms, the general narrative. So we have sort of classic Bronze Age life rolling along in in these cities. They're crowded, vibrant places. Over time, there becomes significant hierarchy and and class structure. Mm -hmm. Slavery becomes rampant. Like several of these cities like make all their money, become very wealthy, important, powerful places because specifically of their robust slave trade. You know, we have... Agriculture, like most calories are coming from agriculture. And because we have writing, which we'll circle back to in a minute, we literally have recipes, which I love because it's so personal and you can really like picture their lives. We have a specialization of craftspeople. So there's, you know, sophisticated pottery. There's sophisticated, you know, toys and things like very Mm. day-to-day things. There's, you know, jewelry and we have poetry and we have just all these things that people you know, need time to engage with. There's lots and lots of monumental architecture, um, including and sort of most iconically, perhaps these things called ziggurats, which are stepped pyramid temples. So they look like a giant building that's sort of shaped like a gigantic staircase, like a tower. And the idea is that you, that you want literally physically to be closer to the gods. So they're very tall. Right. Right. Like many bronze age societies or current societies, religion and the government are entirely intertwined with each other. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so these temples and these ziggurats are very important politically. Mm-hmm. And the priests and priestesses frequently perform their duties on these ziggurats, like on platforms where the public can witness 
can Got witness it, like them out in front them. kind of or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. up high still um oh, but see, but just you know publicly so that the right. the people can you know witness the the religious rites of the priests and priestesses Along the Euphrates River, in the crowded Sumerian city of Ur, was a ziggurat dedicated to the moon god. In 2200 BCE, the high priestess of this ziggurat was named Enhejuena, and she is the first ever named author. She writes of passion, violence, womanhood, and the nature of gods. It also features the oldest surviving use of the pronoun I. It was in your service that I first entered the holy temple. I, Enhejuena, the highest priestess. I carried the ritual basket, I chanted your praise. Now I've been cast out to the place of lepers. Day comes and the brightness is hidden around me. Shadows cover the light, drape it in sandstorms. My beautiful mouth knows only confusion. Even my sex is dust. As Ellie mentioned a minute ago, the history of Mesopotamia at this time is one of conflict between cities. Enhejuena's father, Sargon the Great, was the king of the city of Akkad, and during his reign he conquered many Mesopotamian city-states, creating one of the earliest empires on the earth. His reign is recorded on an important artifact called the Sumerian King List, which are tablets that chronicle the rulers of ancient Mesopotamian cities. As Sargon the Great's empire grew, so did the unrest among the Sumerian cities that he conquered, especially when he changed their official language from Sumerian to Akkadian. Sargon appointed his daughter Enhejuena to her position of high priestess in one of these Sumerian cities that he conquered, called Ur. From her ziggurat there, she wrote many hymns and songs to the gods of both cultures, likely in an effort to help unite the divided peoples of Sumer and Akkad. Another big thing that they uh, that they did was they had they had pretty sophisticated math, and their math relied on the number system that was in a base sixty, the sexagesimal number system, as opposed to our number system, which is in the base 10. And because of that, still to this day, the fact that our number, that our hours have 60 minutes in them or that Mm -hmm. our minutes have 60 seconds Mm -hmm. or like that a circle has 360 degrees in it. All of that is rem is like the remnants of, you know, like right now to this day, the way we divide our days up is because of the way the Sumerians counted, which is cool. Yeah. It is very cool. It's also a little frustrating. I wish we would do it by hundreds, but that's just me. (laughs) Wow. No respect for the poor Sumerians. No respect at all. Uh, Put some respect on the Sumerians' math. Sorry about that. How about written language as opposed to math? Just very quickly, the way languages tend to evolve, written languages tend to evolve, is with early markings that usually mean numbers. So you Mm. might just have like a scratch mark that keeps track of like how many goats are mine and how many goats are yours. Mm-hmm. And then kind of a logistical purpose at first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then they are very, we, the symbols develop for very, very concrete nouns, usually to label something. So this, 
picture that I'm scratching onto the top of my jar means that this jar has honey in it and this one means it has oil in it. And maybe a, a different mark might mean that it's my name. So this is my jar of honey as opposed to your jar of oil. Mm -hmm. And then the writing just becomes more abstract over time. And it takes a long time for this to happen, like that for more less specific words to develop, even things like adjectives, but then it's an even bigger step removed to develop things like pronouns and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You can see the evolution of the Sumerian writing. They, they scratched, they like etched with using a sharp reed onto clay tablets in this writing that we call cuneiform. And okay. you can see very early on, like a triangle means mountain. And then you go forward in time a little bit and a triangle might mean foreign, for example. Mm -hmm. like, like from the mountain. Exactly. Or, okay, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And so though that you see that evolution occur. And then mm -hmm. the final leap that many languages make, although not all of them, is into an alphabet, where instead of having this increasingly complicated system of symbols where you just have to keep adding them you just go all the way backwards and distill it down into sounds sure. and so a common word like the mountain word that we used earlier might the symbol for mountain might then just become m so then m is just the triangle instead of m for mountain or m for foreign or whatever So we have thousands of these clay cuneiform tablets documenting life in Mesopotamia, you know, in Sumer and Akkad, basically sitting untranslated in boxes in museums. Mm, uh, untranslated because, because we can assume that they're mostly bureaucracy and not important, or why are they untranslated? Well, well interestingly, there is a, like a historian who said, because almost no one on the whole earth can read them, most of them aren't even mm. categorized, like much less translated because um, so few people can read cuneiform can read cuneiform yeah it's a tiny tiny number yeah and okay. and so like surely yes a lot of them are just bureaucratic like pay stubs and you owe me sheep and whatever but sure of the stuff that we've translated there's also just all this great stuff you know we have poetry and we have recipes and we have literal drinking songs and we have just all these things that give you insight into just like actual human people's lives day to day, you know, the people that were actually living there, which is so great. There's all these proverbs and the proverbs sound like they could have been written last week. You know, they're just like people complaining about their marriage, people complaining about their bosses. You know, it's just very familiar. Um, and then, of course, also on these tablets, we have our very first literature. You know, the epic poem Gilgamesh is written in cuneiform. Written on 11 cuneiform tablets, the Epic of Gilgamesh details the life of King Gilgamesh, who ruled a massive Sumerian city called Uruk. Gilgamesh's reign is documented on the Sumerian king list, like Sargon, which means he's probably a real king, but like much of history, his story has been mythologized over time. One tablet of this epic contains a perhaps familiar flood story, in which the gods plan to kill every living thing in a massive flood. A mortal man named Utnapishtim is warned of the incoming flood in a dream, so he loads every animal onto a gigantic boat, and together they all survive the deluge. 
Utnapishtim releases three birds, and when the third does not return, he knows it's found somewhere dry to land. He offers incense at the mountain ziggurat in gratitude to the gods, repairing the relationship between humans and the divine. On another tablet of his epic, Gilgamesh leaves his city and meets a man who was born in the wilderness. They fight for seven days and then ultimately become friends. This relationship between King Gilgamesh and this wild man is an ancient version of the urban versus rural dichotomy, which you can imagine was an increasingly important theme as cities began to dominate parts of the world. certainly over the course of Sumerian history and over the course of like all history, there's lots of writing about the the people that live in the hills, you know, and, and basically every language on the earth, as far as I can tell from doing my research for this, has some word that means barbarian, you know, that means like mm. the the people that aren't us, that are less sophisticated than us and are a threat to us. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of like that type of language appearing at this time there's like becomes this sort of division between the city dwellers as being like us the sophisticated ones who like know about the gods and like can live properly and then the other that like is lurking in the mountains you know ready to get us and in fairness like they were lurking in the mountains and did get them lots of times i mean you know (laughs) for what that's worth yeah 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 So coming to the end of our 10 minutes here on Mesopotamia, uh, anything else to mention before we go? Yeah, so there's one one last thing that I want to cover quickly, and that is the the earliest version of the Babylonian Empire. And that is when one southern Mesopotamian city along the Euphrates, Babylon, takes over an enormous swath of Sumer of southern Mesopotamia okay. and establishes an empire under this king Hammurabi. Ah, okay. I feel like I know Hammurabi's code or something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I don't know what it so, says, but I feel yeah, like I yeah. Know. <laughs> no, so his law code, his law code, the code of Hammurabi is very oh, right. famous. There are sort of different versions of it in, in various cities, but the language of Hammurabi's code is very, very familiar if you've read the law code in the Hebrew Bible. It's, you know, clear that this kind of law code was um, standard or becoming standard throughout the land. So it establishes the right of the king to rule, like it says, God said, I can. Um, and But then it tells the king that they need to protect the orphan and the widow, the way a shepherd protects his flock. So that, again, mm. you know, that, that language rings very familiar to me. Um, but it's importantly the law code that we get the language an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth from. So mm. this is in contrast to earlier Mesopotamian law codes, specifically from this law code from the city of Ur, which says specifically, if a man knocked out the eye of another man, he shall weigh out half a mina of silver. Or if a man knocked out the teeth of another man, he shall pay two shekels of silver. Mm, So you can like literally pay with currency for crimes where Hammurabi is like, 
It's an eye for an eye. It's an eye for an eye. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's a pretty big change, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Babylonian Empire in several episodes will be incredibly important. And this is just the very earliest version of it. And obviously, we're barely touching on it. But Hammurabi's code is, is an important, you know, sort of early law code that establishes a lot throughout this whole, you know, part of the world. All right, wrapping up Mesopotamia and Babylon, uh, where do we head to next? So now we're going to move way across the world and we're going to move to a civilization that relies a lot on cotton and we're going to move to a civilization that builds pyramids and is along rivers Mm -hmm. that run through deserts and it Mm -hmm. isn't Egypt. What? Yeah, exactly. Um, It's in fact Peru. Um, Okay, cool. Very surprising. So in Peru, there the Andes Mountains run down along the coast. There's a gap, though, between the mountains and the actual ocean, and that gap is an, a pretty intense desert. However, there's rivers that run out of the mountains and flow down into the ocean, and so it runs through this desert land, floods into the surrounding lands around it, making mm-hmm. fertile farmland, and the, along those rivers grow this pretty incredible civilization which we call the Norte Chico or the Corral civilization. Cool. And it's it's similar to Mesopotamia. It's a bunch of cities or is it just one big, huge city? No, or, it's a bunch yeah. of cities. And the, and the first one we found and the one that's the most well-preserved is called Corral, which is why, you know, which, which gave the whole civilization its name. But it isn't actually the biggest one. It's just the one that we know the most about. Okay. Um, and... Yeah, what was life like there? What were they eating and farming and whatnot? So they are really fascinating civilization because in some ways they're totally unique compared to the early civilizations that we know about in Afro-Eurasia. And one of the most interesting things about them is they are pre-ceramic. So they're the only big giant civilization we know about that came into existence before they had ceramic, before they had pottery. Um, Wow. That's like hard to imagine for some reason, just like thinking of how useful ceramics are. It's it's really hard. Been. Yeah, it's very hard to imagine. And and just talking about their diet for a second, I don't know if this is part of the answer lies in their diet. So a lot in these river floodplains, they were growing peppers, squash, avocados, peanuts, beans, small amounts of corn and potatoes. Yum. So I know it's like I definitely <laughs> diet wise they were they were the place to be I think okay but cool. what's interesting about that list is that it doesn't include a large grain and so they you know they had small mm. amounts of corn and potatoes especially at the end but there wasn't like millet or wheat or rice or something that needed to be cooked into a porridge And so they could, you know, they could roast their food. So there's some speculation among the archaeologists that there wasn't the same sort of barrier in order to get calories from the food sources available. They had to invent ceramic so they could make a porridge. You know, there wasn't that same kind of barrier in the in in Peru and in the Norte Chico civilization. Yeah. Is it I mean, what were like their the homes and the cities like built uh, built from if not like clay and 
Um, well, they were built from they were built from um, clay bricks, interestingly, but they weren't. They didn't have like um, fired fired pottery, pottery that built on a wheel. Yeah, exactly. Having oh. said that, they they did grow a lot of squash and gourds, which of course preserve nicely into like a water carrying vessel or whatever. So it's not quite as um, it can't do all the things that a ceramic pot could do, but it can do a lot of them. Okay, I got you. When you said pre-ceramic, that refers to something specific in that it's like cooked in a in a kiln. It fired in a kiln so that it has all these specific properties to it. A sun sun-baked clay is just more fragile. I see. And you said they're growing cotton. Yeah, so they were growing that's cotton. And yeah, the reason that's interesting is it's given rise to all these theories that maybe their cotton production was actually what allowed them to become a big civilization, specifically that they could weave intricate fishnets, like huge fishnets out of them, and then really access the resources of the ocean. And so for a long time, the theory was that the groups of people that lived upstream grew the cotton, and the people that lived downstream right by the ocean would trade with them and gather all these marine resources. And that was how this civilization was basically able to feed itself without access to a big grain. That theory is more and more, con uh, is more controversial now. So who knows, but definitely mm -hmm. they did, they did grow cotton. So um, I'll, I'll link to pictures of Corral on our website because it's really, really cool looking. But um, again, the cities are made of, of mud bricks. And of course, there's many homes in them, but there's also a fair amount of monumental architecture. There's mounds. There's also sunken round plazas, which we don't really know what they're for. I heard this interview saying that um, archaeologists and historians just use the word ritual when they don't like know what they're talking about what so, something's for yeah okay. exactly so they're just like oh they had ritualistic uses but like does that right. mean religion or like football you know it's hard, right. hard to say right. um but there is some speculation that it might have been for games because that's what societies in that area of the world in later times used those sunken round plazas for so maybe this is the okay. origin of that practice um okay cool there's also lots of evidence in these cities of sort of a rich, abstract, spiritual life. Like, there's lots of instruments. There's flutes made from pelican and condor bones. There's um, little cornets made of deer and llama bones. There's... Dope. Right? Totally. Uh, there's um, clay figurines, like female figurines. And then there's lots of jewelry made from things like snail shells and cocoa seeds and semi-precious stones and stuff that aren't from the ecosystem right around mm. the Norte Chico. So what that means, of course, is that there, there must have been some kind of extensive, robust trade because these A are coming network, from yeah. far, far away. Yeah. Cool. Another really important thing that's there is the our very first example of a kipu, which is these intricate knots on strings that are a record-keeping system in much later societies. And our very first example is like all the way back in the Norte Chico. And then there's these big pyramids, like very, you know, the, the big pyramid in, their, um, in the main city that's been excavated is, is the base of it is four football fields. So, you know, big. Oh my gosh. Every time I hear about the scale of pyramids, I'm just like, what? Mind-boggling.
Mind-boggling. And these are different than the pyramids you think of in Egypt, which are made with huge, huge stones. Mm -hmm. And we don't understand how they were built. These were built with small stones and mortar. The reason that that's interesting, aside from just aesthetically they're different and that's cool, is that the rocks were hauled to the site in these these woven nets of reeds. And because the reeds are an organic material, they can be carbon dated. So, Uh, So we know exactly how old they are. We know exactly how old the pyramids are, yeah. So they were built in 2600 BCE, which is very, very similar to when the Egyptian pyramids were built. And I don't know what was going on. I know, because they're like on the opposite sides of the world. I mean, it's almost like a joke to be like, were there aliens or something? But like, why, why were people on two opposite ends of the earth building pyramids at the exact same time and not 10,000 years earlier? And not in communication. Not in communication with each other. It's just actually mind-boggling to me. Coming to the wrap-up point for uh, Peru here, where uh, any any last things before we go? Well, so the final thing to say about about the Norte Chico is just that they sort of vanished. We the Corral, which is the city that we know the most about, was abandoned between 2000 and 1600 BCE, and we don't fully understand why. There's not evidence that they were terribly violently taken over, for example, um, which usually you can see because the city was burned or there's bodies that were mutilated everywhere or whatever there's no, you know we don't have evidence like that um so potentially climate change potentially all all you know there, maybe we, we don't know is the answer and so there was this giant complex civilization that lasted for a long long time built pyramids and then vanished and we don't really know why This feels like one of those moments that I've already had a number of times where I'm baffled or almost angry that I never learned about something. As Ellie said, the Kral civilization or the Norte Chico was massive. It had cities, pyramids, agriculture, trade, and a vibrant culture, all before 1700 BCE. And thinking back, it seems like these tenets were used to justify my education's focus on the civilizations of Afro-Eurasia, but for some reason the Norte Chico was skipped. This feels doubly sad because the fact that this civilization emerged at the same time as the other four, but completely isolated from them, makes them all that much more amazing. Uh, yeah, so moving on from that mysterious end of um, Corral, uh, where do we head to next? So we're going to move across the world back to our more familiar pyramids, um, and those, of course, are in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So Egypt, which is in modern-day Egypt. Uh, Spoiler. <laughs> exactly, it's un- unexpectedly. Um, anything you say about Egypt has to start with the Nile. So the Nile is this incredibly long river which starts much further south in Africa and then kind of famously flows south to north. And that's very unusual for a river to do all the way up to to what is now modern-day Egypt and what is the Egypt that we're talking about in this part of the podcast. What we think now, basically, is that during the Ice Age, the Sahara Desert was pretty green, and the land around the Nile was kind of 
a swampy, flooding mess. And then, as the Ice Age ended and the desert dried up, the Nile River became more gentle. And sort of over the course of that whole long, many thousand-year period, people ended up moving and settling along the, along the Nile. The Nile is one of these rivers that's very predictable and gently floods, so you can really use it for agriculture very well. It's not one of these rivers that's really turbulent and always flooding very unexpectedly. Okay. I see. What that means is that complex societies have grown up all along the Nile as you know, farming takes off in the in this part of in this part of Africa. And ancient Egypt is on the northern part, far northern part of the Nile, uh, which is something about the upper <laughs> I'm remembering something from high school about upper and lower Egypt. Right, because the Nile flows from south to north, Upper Egypt is south, is southern Egypt, and Lower Egypt is northern Egypt. And those were two separate kingdoms. And then in 3200 BCE, there's a king who sometimes is given the name Narmer and sometimes is given the name Menes, and he is the king of Upper Egypt, and he unites the two kingdoms. Okay. Now, what I want to say about this, because it's going to come up a lot of times in this podcast, is that mm -hmm. words like unite are <laughs> words that do a lot of work historically. I see what um, you mean, yeah. The, the picture that we have of King Menes uniting these two kingdoms, he's got the king of Lower Egypt, like, by the hair. <laughs> and yeah. on the back, he's, like, walking by a bunch of decapitated people. Nice. So just a real peaceful uniting of just, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's always, it's always phrased that way. Like King Meanies united upper and lower Egypt. And I'd imagine that if you were living in, in lower Egypt, you would have felt more like you had been conquered or yes. maybe you had been colonized than that you had been united. Right, right. So he was the king of Upper Egypt initially, and in Upper Egypt, they wear like the crown that looks like a white bowling pin. In mm -hmm. Northern or Lower Egypt, they wear like a red, more just regular crown. And he, mm -hmm. after he united these two, wore both. And gotcha. that red and white crown is the crown that you see, like anytime you see anything having to do with ancient Egypt and the pharaohs, they're wearing that crown all the way up until like Alexander the Great. So he starts this thing that goes on for the next 2,500 years. Yeah, I feel like I can picture like hieroglyphic drawings and things of the of that crown specifically of the two parts, you know. Yeah, surely, um, surely. And hieroglyphics, like talking about their writing, am I right? Hieroglyphs, is that... Yeah, that's exactly right. So they they sort of, you know, famously wrote in hieroglyphs that I imagine many people can picture. They've seen them in a in a museum or something. And mm -hmm. what's true is that almost immediately the that writing system began to be simplified by the scribes that were actually using it. And so eventually they the hieroglyphs become so simplified that they're a, an entirely different writing system. And that writing mm -hmm. system is called hieratic. And that's writing system continues to be used, especially for any just bureaucratic writing, any keeping track of things by the government type of writing or pay slips or anything like that. Um, and it, it starts to even be more simplified, more simplified until there's a third writing system, and that's called demotic. And that is invented, you know, 
after the time period that we're talking about in this exact episode. But mm-hmm. um, I want to bring it up here because Demotic is actually the writing system that's on the Rosetta Stone. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So the Rosetta cool. Stone has e- Egyptian hieroglyphs, Demotic, and then ancient Greek, which is a writing system that we didn't forget how to translate. And so because the same text appears in three different languages, sure, we were finally able to like crack the code of hieroglyphs. So that's, you know, why the Rosetta Stone was such like a incredible discovery is because now we can read hieroglyphs. So yes, hieroglyphs would have been sort of written on like the walls of temples or the pyramids or whatever. And then just everyday writing by scribes would have been in heretic. And what sorts of things can we learn from, you know, now that we've translated hieroglyphs and demotic, what sorts of things have we learned about daily life? From these writings so so egyptian life was very um hierarchical there was like a slave class at the bottom and then there were merchants and soldiers and priests and then at the at the very top was the pharaoh but what's interesting and different for mesopotamian society is that in mesopotamian society where you were born was where you stayed but there was some amount of social mobility in egyptian society you could be okay. born a slave educate yourself and maybe like become a a merchant or something. Um, Okay. But the Pharaoh at the top was a God. And again, that's a bit in contrast to Mesopotamia, for example, where the gods gave the Mesopotamian kings the right to rule, like they were granted this right. But in Egypt, it was viewed as the Pharaoh is the divine representation of the gods on the earth. Mm -hmm. So the Pharaoh himself is divine. So in terms of Egyptian religion, there are many gods. and And these gods are possibly familiar to you if you were obsessed with mythology as a child. I feel like their names are quite familiar, like Ra, Isis, Osiris. And so when you die, your thing that's very comparable to maybe the concept of a soul, which is your ka, has potential to keep living. So Osiris weighs your heart. If your heart is lighter than the feather of truth, which means that you didn't do a lot of terrible things to make it heavy, then it gets to keep on living. Mm. If it's heavy, then your heart just gets eaten and then you're actually dead. So that's a bummer. Um, bummer for you, yeah. Yeah, big bummer. So if your ka gets to keep on living, then it still needs access to your body. That's something that's interesting and sort of not, and it's not unique to Egyptian religion. Lots of religions feel like this, but um, but it's just very particularly held where the the preservation of your body is very important in order to house your soul. And so they develop very sophisticated ways of preserving bodies such that, of course, some of their bodies are still preserved to this day. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think I ever learned about like the origin of like the religious origin of like why mummification became a practice. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, they began to build more and more elaborate temples and tombs to hold their bodies um, or to hold the Mm -hmm. pharaoh's bodies. Let's be clear that this was not like random merchant did not get this treatment. (laughs) And so, of course, that's where you get pyramids. The very first pyramid is in 2670 BCE, so right exactly at the same time that they're building pyramids in Peru. And um, I know, it's just like, it's actually just mind-blowing. Yep. 
Oh, you got to continue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But then what's also interesting is that like it's actually only a few hundred years that they're building pyramids. They're so deep in our imagination that it feels like ancient Egypt is just like nothing but pyramids forever. But really, um, it's, it's kind of this short window. We don't fully understand how they were built. The more you look at how they're built, the more astounding they are. The, just just the feats of engineering that they are just become more baffling the more you understand about them. That's yeah. one thing I'll say. Um, and nobody really fully understands how they did it. There's many, many theories. One thing I do want to say, I, I just want to address really fast, is the concept of whether or not they were built by slaves. What is definitely true is over the course of human history and over the course of human geography, every imaginable variation on forced labor has occurred. So mm -hmm. we think of the word slavery as meaning something very specific. In fact, yeah. over the course of time, there's been lots of situations where somebody might be forced to work, but then they're paid for it, for example, or mm -hmm. they might be viewed as being owned by somebody else, but the they have a lot of power in the society anyway. Mm -hmm. So what seems to be true is that the people who built the pyramids were not viewed as being owned by anybody. There wasn't a concept of ownership and they probably were paid. However, it also seems likely that the Pharaoh's people went out into the countryside and sort of gathered the young, strong men or the artisans who were good at working with stone or the greatest engineers and were kind of like, you have to come work for me and the work will be quite dangerous. The end, you don't get a vote. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So just our, our very like concrete binary version of like who's enslaved and who's not enslaved is, is like not necessarily that helpful at various points in history. So I don't mm -hmm. think that the pyramids were probably built by people who were owned by anybody. And there were lots of people who were, you know, literally enslaved in Egypt and they don't seem to be the people who are building the pyramids. However, I don't think that you got a lot of option or a lot of you know, job choice and whether or not you wanted to build pyramids for the pharaohs. And the, and surely the countries just starve to pay for these projects. I mean, they're just unimaginably big. However, yeah. Yeah. the the really gigantic pyramids, that was of only a very short amount of time. And then there's, but then there's like, you know, 300 miles along the Nile of much smaller pyramids that, you know, go on for the next several hundred years and then but then basically by somewhere between 2200 BCE and 2300 BCE pyramids kind of fade so it's really only this period of a few hundred years that we think of as dominating yeah, yeah ancient yeah. Egypt but Cleopatra who's contemporary with Jesus so she's year zero um but a queen of Egypt uh, but yeah, but a queen of ancient Egypt and iconically ancient Egypt um, is, you know, closer to us than she is to the time when they were building the pyramids. Right. So it's just it, it, we think we like to think of ancient Egypt as being one event, but it was, in fact, you know, 3000 years long. Yeah. Um, cool. Is that is that a wrap on on Egypt? Do we move yeah, on I from think here? That, that will be a wrap on Egypt just because we're going to keep coming back to it. So we're going to talk about sure. some of the other civilizations that lived along it, especially the Nubians who lived right south. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, the, and it, it's just going to keep coming up. I mean, Egypt is still clearly very historically and politically relevant 
this day, um, but certainly, you know, for the next while. So at this moment, we're just going to kind of shelve it and we'll come back to it in future episodes. So, so far we've talked about Mesopotamia and Peru and Egypt. Uh, where do we head to next? So next we're going to head to the Indus Valley or the Harappan civilization, which uh, turns out to be my favorite ancient civilization, which which isn't a category <laughs> of favorite I, I ever expected to have. Nice, nice. Um, Especially nerdy at this point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so both Mesopotamia and Egypt mention another great civilization to their east. And so where is this civilization? It covers this huge, huge space, 800,000 square kilometers. And it's spread across modern, the modern countries of Pakistan and Northern India, all along the Indus River and, and several other rivers that are right there. So they're flowing down from the Himalayas out to the Arabian Sea. And in that huge, huge space are thousands of small settlements and villages, and then a sprinkling of gigantic cities. What's interesting is that these cities can be hundreds of kilometers apart from each other. And again, these small settlements can be quite tiny, but spread across this whole space is like a very, very consistent culture, like archeological package. Hmm. What, what do you mean by that? Like what's consistent throughout? The first thing to say about that is how do we know what we know about the Indus Valley? Because something that's so interesting about it is that it does have writing, but we can't read it. There's nothing oh, like the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so everything we know about their culture, we've learned through archaeology. Um, okay. With a couple exceptions, because again, the the people of Mesopotamia and the Egyptians talk about them. So we have like a right. little bit of secondhand writing about them, right. but their own okay. writing we can't read. So that's like a really big bummer, I think. So the Norte Chico has doesn't have writing, so we don't have that issue. But here we do have writing and we just can't translate it. Yeah, no it. Rosetta okay. Stone. That's yeah. crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I hope, Got you it. know, AI cracks that for us or something. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So back to your question of, you know, what does it mean to say that there's a consistent culture? What have we, you know, learned from archaeology? And so the most obvious way you can see it is through their urban planning. And so their cities all seem to follow similar plans in these really remarkable ways. They are, again, made of mud brick buildings like so many of these other ones, but they have like gridded streets and the houses are all oriented to let air flow through them in the right, you know, the most efficient way. Um, and each of their bricks is made with the same exact ratio. And so... What? Yeah. So okay. there's like a one to two to four ratio that's just all over all of their villages and cities. So there's one size of brick in that ratio that they use to make their houses. There's a mm -hmm. different size, but the same ratio brick that they use to make their bigger buildings. The rooms in their what? houses follow that ratio. What? It, I know. That's it's so cool. It's just so cool. It's so cool. And then again, across this 800,000 square kilometer space, they have completely standard weights and measurements, some of which Whoa. are still being used in parts of India today. Um, and then 
one thing that makes them really unique is that they have covered drainage you know, mm. out out of your house flows the water, goes down the two sides of the streets on covered drains, and then goes into an underground pipe that carries the dirty water out of the city. Mm. So again, we're like 2000 BCE, and they have and they've like got underground plumbing. Underground That's crazy. plumbing, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's really wow. crazy. This place is very appealing, very much to my Virgo brain. <laughs> I, no, it, it's this place is so appealing, and the, yeah. so the underground, the underground plumbing hints at one of the reasons why they're really so striking and amazing, and that mm. is that this drain, these drainage systems exist even in the kind of poor sections of town. Okay. And so what's really unique about the Indus is that there's like a shocking amount of evidence that there isn't terrible structural inequality. What and yeah, what sort of evidence would we see of of the equality is I guess you just mentioned there's plumbing in in different in all different neighborhoods, but you know, what what other evidence would there be of that? There there are sort of wealthier, what appear to be like wealthier neighborhoods and less wealthy neighborhoods, but there's attention paid to public health in both. And mm -hmm. a, another big example of that is in their diets. And so, um, so this ecosystem largely has rivers that flood twice a year that creates essentially six seasons with two growing seasons in it. And that allows an agricultural package of like barley, wheat, oats, lentils, millet sesame seeds melons grapes dates like this whole kind of agricultural package that makes sense in that part of the world and what's so interesting is that when we excavate skeletons from different neighborhoods of these big cities there does mm -hmm. not seem to be evidence that they were eating remarkably different diets dependent mm -hmm. on how wealthy they are and that is very mm -hmm. different than the cities of mesopotamia or the cities of egypt or something where if you were rich you ate well and if you were poor you know you had all these problems with your body because mm -hmm. you were eating poorly and that's a throwback too to like episode one when we were talking about the copper age and some of the more egalitarian societies there you know, Chatelhoyuk, for example, you said specifically that we were finding mo almost all the skeletons are doing the same labor and have the same like nutritional, seem to have the same nu nutrition throughout their life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it. it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty wild. And then one, one last thing is that one of the fit most famous artifacts that you find all over the Harappan civilization are these small square seals um, that you can think of almost like a stamp. And they usually have an animal engraved on them. The animal is frequently a unicorn because this is just the coolest <laughs> nice. society ever. Yeah. What? Um, okay. And then at the top is writing, which again, we can't read, but they, their guess is that they're almost like your signature or like a receipt. So if we're having um, some kind of exchange of goods, then we stamp something or other to show that like I agreed to it and you agreed to it or whatever, you okay. know, this is like your yeah, signature. signature. Sure. Yeah. And those stamps are found in the small villages in the same way they're found in the big cities. They're found in all types of people's homes. And so it doesn't mm. seem to be that there's like this elite class that rules the commerce and mm -hmm. everyone else is subject to them. Like there just seems mm -hmm. to be like a fair amount of equality. Mm -hmm. And the most shocking thing is we can't figure out how they governed themselves. 
Right, right. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's literally like standardized weight systems and standardized yeah. how to make your bricks, but there doesn't seem to be palaces or other evidence of a rigid government being like, this is how Whoa. much a kilogram is, you know, like how, so right. we, we don't know. There are small buildings that seem like they could be gathering spaces. And so there's much, much speculation about kind of community meetings, but like, we really don't know. We can't read the writing. Um, Crazy. Yeah. Cool. It's really can we wild. Please figure out how to, if anyone's listening, can you please learn how to read their writing so that we can <laughs> live in a better world today? I, for real, for real. And there's, there isn't, you know, there aren't, there doesn't seem to be examples of like massive monumental architecture, like pyramids or temples. Instead, mm -hmm. there's things like Mohenjo-Daro, which is one of the big, the biggest cities is built on a flood platform, which is so massive that they calculate that it took like 4 million days of labor to build. What do you mean? What is a, like the platform made out of wood or no 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 of of dirt okay. like it's just like built up oh. and some of the smaller villages and 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 towns you know the smaller settlements are built on these platforms as well so there's clearly just so much collective labor so mm -hmm. much working together so much you know regulation and standardization mm -hmm. and rich rich culture without right the evidence of like a top-down government. It's just impossible to like yeah. get our heads around. And yeah. uh, I've linked you to like a couple um, archaeologists talking about it. And especially like, you know, they dig up this little, this little figurine at one point and they call it a priest king. And there's like no evidence at all that it's either a priest or a king. And this this interview with this archaeologist is kind of talking about how like desperate our need is to make sense of this <laughs> complex society by yeah, yeah. putting the concept right. of a priest and a king in it, even though like there actually is no evidence that that's what was going on. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really unique and, and interesting. We have like so much more to learn from it. And, and just the last thing I want to say is that they, they sort of had their golden age and, and it began to decline around 1900 BCE and we don't really know what happened to them. Uh, mm. This is like a very kind of controversial topic. Um, but at some point, a group of nomadic people from further north came down, but it doesn't seem to have been an invasion. It doesn't seem to have been the cause of the collapse of the Harappan civilization. It seems to have kind of been a coincidence. And there was definitely extreme climate change at various points. But basically, there was just this unbelievably cool civilization, and it kind of seemed to vanish for reasons that we don't understand around 1900. And they, the people that live there are not exclusively, anyway, the ancestors of the people who live there now. So maybe they left. We don't know. What is our final, our fifth cradle? Okay, so our fifth one is one we will definitely be returning to in many, many future episodes, and that's China. Okay. 
So in China are two great rivers, two huge rivers run across China. In northern China is the Yellow River, and the Yellow River is wildly unpredictable. It's frequently referred to as China's sorrow because it will jump its banks and flood and kill many people. And so the Yellow River is called the Yellow River because it holds so much silt in its water that it actually looks yellow. The water looks yellow from all the silt. And as this silt flows down, it builds up in different places on the riverbed and over time changes the floor of the riverbed. And that's what causes the water to suddenly jump its banks and flow a different way. I see. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, if you imagine like water rushing down with a bunch of sand in it or something, it's gonna keep altering its course over time. Silt is one of those words that's still bouncing around in my head from grade school when I first learned about civilizations. So what is it, and why does it help with fertility? It's actually just a classification of soil, like sand or clay, and it's created when rocks are eroded into tiny, round particles by water or ice, resulting in a fine, flower-like texture that is easily churned up from the riverbed by turbulent water and rain. If you want to make very fertile soil for a variety of field crops, mixing silt with coarse sand and superfine clay gives that Goldilocks texture, called loam. Not too dense for roots to thrive, like pure clay, and not too loose that water just drains away, like pure sand. In addition, organic nutrients from microbes, plants, and animals abound in healthy rivers and are also carried by the floods and deposited into this nicely textured soil. Once ancient humans figured out how to control this process through irrigation, they had the perfect technique for watering and fertilizing their fields on demand. Along the Yellow River were societies that we that 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 began to you know become more and more complex they began to get more of their calories from farming mm-hmm. and they had incredibly beautiful pottery eventually they began to produce silk which is crucial to chinese history for the next 5000 years they were yep. trading with people that were farther away etc over the course of chinese history this time period has become Uh, a semi-mythical time period that is given the honor of explaining early Chinese history, like of sort of establishing the pattern of Chinese history that then continues to repeat. So if you picture the way people in the United States sort of hold up the founding fathers in this good old days way. Like this yeah. is the time when the when the leaders of our nation cared about their people and they were honorable and they behaved honorably. This this period in Chinese history is a little bit like that. Okay. And and because it's so far back, you know, we're talking 5000 years ago, it it holds this semi mythical place and this is you know much like is true in Egypt or Mesopotamia where there's a lot of like th- this king then ruled for 3000 years or something you know the, the this time in chinese history has a lot of magic in it sure mythology that kind of serves a purpose mythology that serves a purpose that's exactly right so there's this great 
quote from a from from actually like a Roman scholar who he's when he's talking about early history, he says these things never happened, but they always are. And right. it, it just kind of goes to show that even if you're talking about something mythological, you're still talking about what people were actually thinking about. You know, it's like Freud saying, look at people's art if you want to know what they're thinking. And so this, this time period is incredibly important to Chinese history, even if the sources that we have say things like the Yellow Emperor ruled for 100 years. And like probably yeah. that isn't precisely what happened. So there were these three early emperors, which may or may not ever existed. The third is the Yellow Emperor, and he's, you know, credited with like inventing musical instruments and, and figuring out how to produce silk, etc. So surely that didn't actually happen from one person. But the right. point is, around this time, people became better and better at medicine. They became better and better at agriculture. They, you know, learned how to make silk, etc. He's then succeeded by several other people, the five emperors who have different names, depending on what source you look at. Again, in terms of the good old days myth, one of the things that's interesting about this period is a lot of these people pass their leadership down to somebody other than their son and that that's commented on. And so what mm. that means is that the concept of a dynasty already exists. However, these noble leaders understand that their son may not be the best person to rule right. and find the best person. So that, you know, makes them unique. Eventually, this man, you, the engineer, or you, the great, ends up in charge. And he has been tasked with controlling the Yellow River, controlling these floods. And so he's you, the engineer, again. He goes up and down the river, works, works, works. He's sort of famous for only seeing his child three times in his whole life because he would just pass by his house while he was working so hard on this, on this enormous project of controlling the Yellow River. But then he, he somehow creates systems to control the floods and becomes the first emperor of what's now known as the Shah dynasty. Okay. This dynasty is credited as being the first dynasty of dynastic China, which then continues until 1900, you know, 1910. That brings up just like maybe a really simple question, but I actually like don't know what a dynasty mean? Like, what does dynasty mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way that Chinese history in the most simplistic terms unfolds for the next 4,000 years is just uh, emperor rules. He dies and the power goes to his son. He dies and the power goes to his son. Okay. That family is blessed with what's called the mandate from heaven. So God blesses this family's power you know, and, and, and improves of this family's power. Then okay. over time, as this power goes from father to son, father to son, the family inevitably becomes corrupted by this power and they sure. stop caring about the people and they just become corrupt. And then they lose the mandate from heaven. And this is usually indicated by some type of natural disaster. So the Yellow River floods, for example, or there's a terrible earthquake, or maybe somebody invades. And that's evidence that this family has lost the mandate from heaven and then usually somebody comes in and conquers and then their family rules. And so as the different families rules, those are the dynasties. I see. I see. Okay. So we are going to leave China in this semi-mythical Shah dynasty, which establishes 
the pattern for future dynasties of China when we move into time periods that are more concretely established in written language and in archaeology. We're going to just look at this time with its semi-myth and semi-history as Mm -hmm. just exactly what it is, which is Mm -hmm. a a Mm -hmm. story that explains something that's very real and the exact details maybe aren't what's crucial. So as we wrap up episode two here, I just have one sort of remaining question, which pertains to the word or like the idea civilization, um, Mm -hmm. which I know we've been talking a lot about, uh, but I'm kind of just curious, like what, what is the original definition that you gave, if you could remind me, and then sort of what is, what does civilization mean now that we have all these different examples to kind of talk from yeah exceptions and examples to to refer to i mean one answer is i i have no idea what it means you know but we'll we'll come back to that in a second but yeah so in in episode one the list that we gave which is like again exists in slight variations everywhere Mm -hmm. you look is that a civilization has cities it has well-organized governments complex religion specialization of labor distinct social classes art and architecture, large public works, and then complex communication like writing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you said, there's so many exceptions to that. And, and, And very much how it feels to me is like you see what you're looking for or something. Like there's patterns that we expect to find because we looked at early places, mostly Mesopotamia, Egypt, and China, and then sort of looked to see what they had in common with like modern gigantic societies and were like that must be what a civilization is and then mm-hmm. and then sort of haven't adequately revised it as we've come up with like a million other examples of totally different ways of organizing complex society and i mean and that's not fair like plenty of archaeologists and historians do and are aggressively pushing back on those definitions mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but uh but yeah, it is a weird like what's in the eye of the beholder, yeah, or something, right. right? Why we talked about the cradles of civilization in this episode is because of this shift that occurred. You know, we had the Neolithic Revolution; people started to farm all over the world, and it was kind of in varying degrees of relying on farming. And then, roughly five thousand years ago a bunch of gigantic cities emerged around the world. And we're talking about that shift because we're still mm-hmm. living with the effects right. of that shift. You know, those, those quote civilizations, unquote, you know, took over larger and larger swaths of the world, either by ab- actually conquering them or just mm-hmm. by other people seeing what they did and being like, oh, cool, wheels, like calendars, math, you know, whatever. They just mm-hmm. kept borrowing from them. And so... Mm-hmm. um the the shift that occurs couldn't you know it can't be exaggerated how important it is but yeah. at this time the the time period we covered in this episode most of the people in the world are not living in these civilizations with that we come to the end of our second call 
in which we discussed the five cradles of civilization that emerged and flourished between 4000 and 1700 BCE. Their languages, monuments, art, social organizations, and math have profound impacts on our lives today. Next hour, we will pick up right there and keep an eye on all of these civilizations as their ideas of writing, government, and agriculture continue to spread. Episode 3 will cover from 1700 to 1200 BCE. We will see the rise of the Kerma civilization in Sudan, the heroic age of ancient Greece, the origins of modern Chinese characters, and the longest ocean voyage that humans had ever taken. Bye, Ellie. Bye, Charlie. World History 24 is written and researched by Ellie Cazella. I do the production and music. Our logo and design work is done by Alyssa Alarcon Santo. For links to any sources mentioned in the episode, as well as lots of fascinating extra material, visit worldhistory24.com. You can also find information there about how to support this podcast. That's worldhistory24.com. My name is Charlie Cazella, and on behalf of myself and my sister, thank you for listening, and we will see you next hour.